1: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpethanchel. If you're like me, I avoid parenting books. Everyone has advice and it can get pretty tedious hearing what's right and what's wrong. But have you ever wondered why we've embraced certain parenting techniques in this country? There are so many ways to raise a child. Coming up, we talk with NPR's Michaeline Duclef, lead reporter for its new series, How to Raise a Human. That's later. Also, we keep hearing the economy has improved. Improvements in the housing market are one sign of economic gains, but that's not what's happening throughout Connecticut. We'll talk with Hartford Current reporter Ken Goslin to find out more and speak with a longtime realtor about the trends she's seen post-recession. But first, were you hoping for a clearer picture of what candidates have emerged as top contenders in the August primaries, both in the governor's race and other state positions? As we learned last weekend, many Republicans are still interested in the governor's race, even if they did not garner at least 15 percent of the delegate vote. And some are collecting signatures to petition their way onto the ballot. And this past weekend, Democratic delegates chose their candidates. Were there any surprises? To help break it down for us, in studio now is Mark Pazniokas, Cap. Bureau Chief at the Connecticut Mirror. Mark, welcome back to the show.
2: Thanks
3: for having me.
1: Also here with us, Bilal Sikou, Associate Professor of Political Science in Hilliard College at the University of Hartford. Nice to see you, Bilal.
2: Nice to see you also.
1: So I'll start with you, Mark. You've been covering conventions for many years. Uh, any surprises this past weekend?
2: Yes.
3: <laughs> the fact that we're probably about to have a discussion about Lieutenant Governor, that's a big surprise. Uh, The surprise at the Democratic convention is that a young woman named Eva Bermuda Zimmerman, who has been campaigning for – well, who has declared her candidacy for three days before the convention, that she was able to pretty much embarrass uh, her party's presumptive nominee, Ned Lamont, and his choice of Lieutenant Governor Susan Beisowitz by getting 40 percent of the vote, which – became something of a protest, of, of an expression of, of dis, discontent by elements of the party with Ned's choice uh, as opposed to simply uh, people rallying around Eva Bermuda Zimmerman as a candidate. I mean, she's very much, I think, a symbol at this point. Um, but yes, that was, that was the surprise certainly over the weekend in Hartford.
1: Oh, you were talking about people rallying around Eva because she had even said at the convention that she is one of the first Hispanic candidates to, to make it to the primaries, interested in a constitutional office. Can we talk a little bit about that?
3: Yes. The Latino community in Connecticut has, has really um, been slow to assert itself politically. Uh, it was only a few years ago that there was the first uh, Hispanic Democrat elected to the state Senate. Andre Sayella, uh, and currently there's uh, Art Lenars, who's a Republican of Cuban descent, who's uh, in the Senate and running for statewide office, as it turns out, as well. But uh, it's it's a growing population that uh, has been slow to assert itself politically, uh, as opposed to the Black community, which is you know very much well established politically. Is is for years, for decades, has been an important part of the Democratic coalition in Connecticut.
1: Uh, Ned Lamont easily getting uh, the endorsement for uh, the governor's race. Uh, just a few days prior, uh, him cutting a deal with Susan Biesowitz, uh to be his choice for lieutenant governor. That way, she would drop out uh, and he wouldn't have to deal with uh, running against her in the primary.
3: Yeah, it's a, it's a page from a conventional playbook in an, in kind of an unconventional time. Uh, it's certainly eased his mind about the primary. Instead of having a a, a three- or four-way primary, he's really facing now Joe Ganim, uh, who was pretty much snubbed at the convention. You know, Joe Gannam is the mayor of Bridgeport. He's a skilled politician as far as campaigning, but he obviously has a huge burden in that he served seven years in prison for a public corruption conviction, and there is a lot of doubt uh, outside of his close circle as to whether he could be credible statewide, certainly in a general uh, if perhaps he could he could win some support in a primary. So Ned you know Ned Lamont decided he was going to simplify things. Uh, he had made offers to to other people for lieutenant governor you know primarily I know the one he really wanted was the New Haven mayor Tony Harp, which would have been smart politics as well as getting a good partner for governing uh, having, an African-American woman who's a mayor of New Haven, a major base, it's the largest uh, source of votes for Democrats. And she's also a woman who was the appropriation co-chair for years before she was elected mayor. So had she joined the ticket and had they been elected, she would have been a player at the Capitol in a way that a lot of lieutenant governors aren't.
1: Uh, Bilal Saku is also here in studio with us. Uh, uh, Mark had talked about some of uh, the tension because of the choice uh, of Ned Lamont to pick uh, a white woman, Susan Baisowitz, to mm-hmm. potentially be his, uh, his running mate uh, if she uh, wins now in the, in the August uh, primary. Uh, what's your take on that tension within the Democratic Party mm-hmm. uh, seeking a more diverse ticket?
2: I think in some ways this, uh, what's playing out in the state of Connecticut is similar with, to what's playing out at the national level. The Democratic Party at the national level relies on the votes of people of color in many ways. Uh, to win the presidency, the Democrats absolutely need a turnout among people of color, not just a ordinary turnout, but we are increasingly seeing a, a high and extraordinary turnout. I think here in the state of Connecticut, you see a similar situation where turnout in central cities, places like Hartford, places like New Haven, places like Bridgeport, is key to the Democrats winning. And so uh, for African-Americans, and I think Paz is right, that certainly there are have been more entrenched in politics in the state than the Latino community has been, but it's been focused primarily in urban areas. Um, and I think right now people are saying to themselves that they'd like to see one, someone near the top of the ticket, if not at the top of the ticket, who is a person of color, particularly given how dependent the party is on those votes and for that support. And I think this race um, will probably be a a very close uh, gubernatorial race in November, which will attract a lot of attention from outside of the state, money coming into the state, um, some of that dark money. And I think the Democrats will need an exuberant turnout. And this raises questions about whether that enthusiasm will be there if the party doesn't really address this issue.
1: This is where we live. I'm getting a recap of the State Democratic Convention. In studio with us, Bilal Sukku, who's an associate professor of political science at the University of Hartford. Also with us, Capitol Bureau Chief of the Connecticut Mirror, Mark Pasniokas. Uh, what's your response to what Bilal was saying, Mark? But also looking at some of the other races for AG and treasurer, we are seeing some diversity.
3: No, that's true. Uh, there is it, overall. It's a it, potentially it's a very diverse ticket. Um, one of the the candidate endorsed for attorney general would be the first Asian elected statewide in Connecticut. Um, William Tong. William Tong, and in the race for treasurer, the endorsed candidate is Sean Wooden, who's an African American lawyer with a background in in finance. Uh, he is the endorsed candidate, <clears throat> and he faces a three way primary with uh, an Indian woman named Dita Bhargava, and, and then there's Arunin Arumpalam, <laughs> oh God. Everybody was, was just at the convention saying Arunin, Arunin Arumpalum. And he also is a lawyer with background in public finance. Uh, he is born in Zimbabwe of Sri Lankan parents. Uh, so, you know, there's certainly diversity but sort of by political standards of connecticut non-conventional diversity the thing you have to remember there's a long tradition in connecticut of ticket balancing by the democrats going back to 1962 when john bailey the great ticket balancer um helped put a banker named gerald lamb on the ticket he was the first black person elected statewide in connecticut Uh, he was the first black state treasurer in the country and it started this string of, in every election since then, there has been a black candidate nominated by the Democrats for that position. There's good in that, but the bad in that, it's it sort of became a set aside in some ways. And it's produced a diverse ticket time after time, but it sort of has become autopilot. And there's been resentment about that. It's like, okay, <clears throat> this is the one seat so that's part of the debate this year. Now, the other thing to quickly throw out, in the age of direct primaries, you really can't pick a ticket like that. Um, Ned Lamont certainly is, is the uh, presumptive nominee for governor, could name a running mate. But as far as the rest of the down ballot, these are individual races, and people, you know, people have to rise and fall on their own.
1: You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266, uh, talking again about that Lieutenant Governor uh, Democratic primary where you have Susan Beitzowitz, who is a longtime uh, uh, political uh, person here in the state of Connecticut, against this newcomer, Eva uh, Bermudez Zimmerman. Um, what do you think is going to happen in August in terms of the fact that we, we have this primary in the, in the middle of summer, but there's also a lot of interest uh, with this newcomer and this race against uh, the established establishment. Do you think voters are going to come out to the polls below?
2: It'll be interesting because I think in uh, Eva's case, she has gotten a lot of support from labor. She comes out of labor and the Democratic Party needs labor in order to be able to win. And so in some ways, this protest vote, to me, reflects some of that tension between um, Lamont's choice of Bicewitz as lieutenant governor, their feelings about her and support for labor kinds of issues and having one of their own in addition to the diversity issue. And so I think, um, you know, the potential for this to be a very heated um, lieutenant governor's race is real because I think that um, there are lots of folks in the labor movement. The labor movement itself um, is increasingly growing with people of color in the ranks in terms of the areas where labor has been able to really do some effective organizing in recent years. And so you see that tension bubbling up also within the labor movement and questions about leadership among the various unions. And so EVA really represents the face of labor in the future. And so um, in that sense, this this is going to be a very interesting um, summer to watch this uh, race mm-hmm. unfold.
1: Mark, what will we see in the next few weeks?
2: Well, we'll, we'll see
3: the... Um Primary situation clarified because there's a deadline at the end of the week about people who are going, who are at least going to uh, uh, accept the qualification and go forward with the primary. And That's more of a question with a couple of Republicans. We won't know the full primary ballot until the middle of June. The deadline for people petitioning uh, is June 12th, and then it takes days for these local officials to authenticate the signatures. Uh, so. I think you'll start to see some. I think after. I think there may be a down day or two, as people regroup. But you're going to see some visibility uh, events. Uh, Bilal is absolutely right. Eva's strength is the labor movement. Um, you will, you will start to see events staged by them. Uh, the the other thing I think to keep in mind is that you know the labor movement. In the black community, there's something in common there, which is from time to time they feel that they're taken for granted by Democrats. So, you know, these things will come together uh, in her campaign. I mean, she's she's Puerto Rican, she's not black, but there is that sense of the Democrats from time to time uh, taking those groups for. For granted, so that that I think will be part of the energy we'll see there. We're not going to see a lot of issue differences between Susan Bysiewicz and Eva Bermudez Zimmerman. I mean, let's be honest, this is not going to be a great campaign about issues. I, I'm guessing they're going to agree on 99% of the Democratic agenda. The question is, what what will it say uh, regarding who the party puts forward? Now, the irony is, a month ago, people would have said. Uh, in the year of the woman having Susan Bicew would step forward and being on the ticket probably would have been a great thing. But this has been something that has really been organic. It's it's just it just blew up.
2: Wow I think in some ways, though, this goes back to my earlier point. I mean, I think that this is a much larger issue and a much larger problem for the Democratic Party. This is a party that increasingly relies upon people of color in order to win. And so people of color are saying we want to be um, more than just this group that you call upon every four years to uh, get elected to office and that we want representation. I mean, I think it plays out. You look at the delegation for the congressional delegation in the state. You look at um, the state lead- the leadership in the state legislature. You look at um the leadership that the Democratic Party has put forth um, for statewide offices, and what you have is quite a conundrum. You have a party that uh, probably, I would say, 30 40% of the, the party's sort of core base of, of supporters who turn out regularly are people of color. And yet the people who run the party, the people who are the leaders of the party um, at the state level as well as in the legislature are not reflected With the groups that are are crucial to the success of the party,
1: you mentioned the congressional uh, delegation. You know, we didn't even talk about what happened in the the fifth district. uh, Mark uh, from the Connecticut Mirror, Mark Pasniokis, in terms of another newcomer, Johanna Hayes, an African American woman, a national teacher of the year, um, looking to uh, seek the the nomination, uh, the endorsement, and uh, she getting a very close race with uh, Mary Glassman, another longtime uh, politician in the state of Connecticut. Tell us what happened there.
3: Well, there's an example of a leader of the party, namely Chris Murphy, really reaching out to her and encouraging her to run because he recognized what Bilal just said. Um, And it's not just the qualifications of the candidate for the position. It's what the candidate would do by being on the ticket, who they could help turn out. And not only do they think she is ready to step onto that national stage. but that she could turn out people, excite people in in communities in the 5th District, you know, Danbury, Meriden, New Britain, where there are um, decent-sized minority um, populations. Uh, and what it would say more broadly, you know, again, a little bit of excitement, a fresh face. So what happened there that night was uh, she, she and Mary Glassman were neck and neck. At the end of the second ballot, it looked like uh, – Johanna Hayes was gonna win by one vote. There were vote switches, which is part and parcel of the rules and the culture of both parties. And Mary Glassman pulled it out. And one of the factors seemed to be some resentment uh, expressed towards Senator Murphy for not making the right phone calls, not reaching out to people to explain what he was doing. And again, it sounds petty, but that's also part of politics.
1: How much does this have to do with uh, the Trump effect, so to speak, uh, getting people energized to not only seek uh, office, but to come out for the elections in November?
3: Donald Trump is the Democrats' best recruiter at this point. He has been since election night uh, in 2016. We've seen that in the municipal elections. Uh, we've seen it in election special elections elsewhere. And it's, it's the best thing the Democrats have going because the trend in Connecticut, at least for the General Assembly, was a strong Republican trend. You know They were on the verge of taking over the General Assembly. They tied in the Senate. They were only five seats short in the House. Now it's, it's a jump ball because the Democratic base is certainly energized by President Trump.
2: Yeah. Well. it's a it's a big question mark for me about what will happen between now and November and to what extent here in Connecticut the Trump effect will have that kind of effect. Um, I think you know, certainly nationally, what we've seen is that Donald Trump has been um, someone who has motivated, especially people of color to turn out to vote in places like Alabama and and other states that have held primaries that Democrats have had some success in. And so on the one hand, I think there's a real potential for that effect to occur and that it will sort of galvanize turnout. I mean, the challenge, of course, is that when you have a primary on August 14th, a lot of people are out of the state. A lot of people are not around um, for the primary. So we may not see that kind of a jump like we've seen in other states. But then there's a lot of time between now and November and a lot of things that this president can do to energize the base and uh, you know, his regular treater, tweeter rats and and other sort of uh, efforts to um, polarize the population may, in fact, uh, boost turnout in, in November. And the Democrats will probably need that because Mark is right that the trend over the last few election cycles have really favored the Republicans. And um, Republicans feel like they have a good shot at winning the governorship and taking control at least of one of the chambers in the House, the state um, House the state uh, legislature. And so from that standpoint, I imagine they're going to be quite energized. And I think the other thing will happen. This uh, governor's race is one of those um, positions that nationally, the the Republican Party thinks that the Democrats are vulnerable in the state. And there's a possibility of actually winning the governorship. And so from that standpoint, we're likely to see a lot of interest in the state, a lot of visits by people coming into the state. And what will be interesting to see is if Trump is one of those folks who will try to visit the state to sort of rally his base in the state.
1: Mark, do you think that'll happen?
2: Before primary, there are certain people who I think wouldn't have minded that.
3: In the general, I'm not sure if he'd be a help or a hindrance uh, in this state. And, uh, you know, it was the same question with Dan Malloy: How visible do you want Dan Malloy in the fall for the Democratic Democratic ticket?
1: Mm. Uh, And before we head to break, there also are uh, independent candidates running for governor. Uh, We should let our listeners know about them, Mark.
3: Well, Oz Griebel uh, is probably the best-known uh, former head of the Metro Hartford Alliance. He was a candidate for governor for the Republicans in 2010. Uh, he's trying to sort of find a middle path between the two parties. I think his best hope would have been if both parties ended up with extreme candidates. And on the Republican side, I mean, there was a fear that uh, Peter Lamash, who is you know, very conservative, uh, strongly identified himself as a loyalist to the president, uh, but he didn't qualify for a primary, and he's not petitioning. On the Democratic side, uh, the nightmare scenario for them would be that Joe Ganim somehow would, would win, um, with it being a, a two-way primary, if there is a primary, or at most a three-way. There's a gentleman named Guy Smith who's also petitioning to get on the Democratic primary. Um, you know, that seems to be unlikely, Um so, but, uh, and there's also, there are, there are minor parties as well. the Libertarians are putting somebody forward. I think the Greens are going to try again. And there's an independent party, which the control of that line is now subject to a court fight. So it's unclear at this point if whether or not they'll have that ballot line or not, because it's up to a judge to figure out who controls that line. Two years ago, nobody had it in the Senate race because they couldn't figure out who controlled the line.
1: You've been at this a long time, Mark, as a political reporter in the state of Connecticut. Have you seen this level of interest in office?
3: Sure. Well, as far as candidates, no. I mean, no, if you're talking about the fields for Democratic and Republican candidates, hell no. I mean, this was amazing. 11, 12 fairly credible candidates on the Republican side, credible as far as able to raise significant funds and, and get some support. On the Democratic side, at one point they were up to eight. Before, you know, if you include Luke Bronan, the mayor of Hartford, who was exploring, uh, yes, it's it's kind of the extreme case. Uh, it's an open seat, you know, so that does attract more. But the other dynamic is that it's a job that's still considered to be a pretty tough job to do. That the next governor as is the case with the present governor, is going to be faced with significant financial challenges. Those are not fun times to be a governor. You know, you're saying no to people, you're cutting, you're looking for revenue. And, uh, and so there were an, uh, any number of people who you would think would have been interested who, who took a pass. So you had a field that was, I won't call it the B team, but they were you know not the more obvious uh, candidate, shall we say.
1: Uh, Bilal, uh, one tweet from a listener. If the Democrats think they can just run on we're not Trump and not the issues affecting Americans, they will have learned nothing from the disastrous past election right. response. I,
2: I think the, uh, the person who sent the tweet is absolutely right um, with regard to the congressional election. But just to follow up on something in the past, was saying, I think this gubernatorial race is a really important one because I think Connecticut is at this point where there are some problems that the state faces that um, are difficult, and whoever steps into that office will have a difficult time, in addition to, you know, real structural fiscal budget problems that the state has in terms of generating revenue to, to deal with many of the challenges it faces. We've got infrastructure needs in the state, um, our higher education um, institutions, um, need money, need more support, and we've seen over the you know last few years that that support has not been where it needs to be. Uh, we've got roads, we've got bridges, we've got you know a state in which affordability is an issue with regard to housing. Um, you know, I teach at a at a university, and one of the things I want to do is encourage my students to stay here in Connecticut and to. You know to work and to live, but many of them talk and express frustrations about the employment opportunities in the state. Express frustrations about opportunities to find um, affordable housing within the state. Um, we've got fiscal strains at the local level, K through 12 education budgets at the local level. So the list sort of goes on and on and on. And I think whoever steps into this role the next time around has got to come with some really good ideas about how to move the state forward. Because the challenges are real, and they are, they don't lend themselves to easy solutions.
1: We'll have to leave it there. Bilal Saku, Associate <coughs> Professor of Political Science in Hilliard College at the University of Hartford. Thanks for coming in, Bilal. Sure, thing. Also, Mark Pasniok is Capital Bureau Chief at the Connecticut Mirror. Thanks, Mark, for your analysis. Always a pleasure. And we'll be tweeting out some of Mark's stories at where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nolthethanchel. Coming up, have you tried to sell your home recently or thinking about putting it on the market? Our next conversation is for you. We'll find out why sales are sluggish in some corners of the state, and we want to hear from you, too. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. Spring is a hot market for home sales, or it used to be, depending on where you live. A recent Hartford Current report has found the housing market in Connecticut has not recovered to where it was in 2007 before the recession. Now, are you trying to sell your home? Are you looking to buy? We want to hear from you. eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, happy to welcome back to the studio Ken Gosselin, a reporter for The Hartford Current. Ken, welcome back.
0: Thanks for having me, Lucy.
1: So you recently wrote a piece with your colleague uh, Matthew Kaufman about trends in Connecticut home prices. What's it looking like out there?
0: Well, we were uh, uh, wanted to see over the long term from the peak in prices in 2007 where we had come over the last decade because, of course, Connecticut has had a very rough time um, and still continues to. And so we took data from 10 years, annual data, and looked at median sales price, which is uh, a a measure of how well prices are doing. And we were kind of surprised to find just how poorly we've been doing. Um, We found that no county overall had recovered to where they were in 2007, and just 12 towns had had done that. So it was quite an eye-opener. But we did kind of see a, a move towards recovery.
1: Uh, now, we've done uh, shows about uh, what's working in Massachusetts versus Connecticut. So when we look at the region, um, how is it looking in terms of recovery based on what you're seeing in Connecticut? What's happening in Massachusetts, in New York, uh, in uh, in Vermont, in New Hampshire? Well,
0: what we're not seeing, I guess maybe to turn that around a little bit, what we're not seeing in Connecticut is the job growth. OK, that is one problem that we're having. And. You know, uh, we haven't even gotten back all the jobs we lost in the last recession, and we've actually kind of slipped back a little bit. So we're only up to 78%. So when you're not creating jobs, uh, jobs are tied very closely to the housing market. And, you know, there's tentativeness there, you know, if there isn't job growth.
1: Uh, You interviewed a realtor, and she's on the phone with us right now, Joanne Breen, broker owner of ERA, Sargis Breen, offices in Newington and Berlin, also regional vice president for the Connecticut Association of Realtors. Joanne, welcome to the show.
4: Thank you for having me.
1: So you've been doing this a long time. Uh, Again, we just heard uh, Ken Gosselin saying that uh, the housing market has not recovered to uh, before uh, the recession, uh, but some areas are doing better than others. What can you tell us?
4: Well, yes, Ken is right. Ken and I I have had many conversations over the years about the housing market. We are seeing certain towns, for instance, West Hartford's probably the prime example, where we're seeing uh, prices coming up some. There's a little bit of appreciation that we can uh, look to there. But overall, uh, although sales are way up, number of sales are up, the prices are not back where they should be. We're not anywhere near where we should be at this point. And surrounding states have been appreciating for the last few years. This is problematic. So when someone is putting their house on the
1: market, you've put a lot of investment into your home. You're tr- you're hoping to get some of that uh, in return on investment. But the people looking to buy your home, uh, they're not looking to give you that asking price. And there's a lot uh, of negotiating that has to happen.
4: Yes. I mean, the only thing that's really helping us this spring, to be quite honest, is the inventory has stayed low. And because of that, we are seeing more houses getting asking price or even over with multiple offers again because the supply of houses is low so that's a good thing and I think that may be a sign that's helping turn the market around a little bit but I think Ken hit on a key point without the the support of a good solid job market that's going to keep young people here in Connecticut I don't think we can sustain the type of appreciation we used to see years ago on an average in a normal market we'd see five six percent appreciation a year and if we see two to three percent in the hottest markets this year, I'll be thrilled.
1: You can join the conversation eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. Norm is calling from Manchester. Norm, go ahead.
4: Yeah, I'm a loan officer here in uh, Manchester, Connecticut. And uh, some of the things that we've been seeing in the market is that a lot of the people that bought their houses in say the the 06, 07 crash and are now trying to get you know sell and upgrade. The problem is is that the margin between what they can sell their house for and what they still owe on their mor- mortgage is too small to take care of, you know, the real estate commissions, the upgrades that they have to do to the house uh, when after an inspection from the new buyer, you know, whether it's upgrading an electrical or things that aren't meeting uh, FHA guidelines or you know uh, uh, VA or USDA guidelines. So what we're seeing is some of those people are kind of stuck because they can't really sell their home right now because they don't have the equity enough to cover the expenses of actually what it takes to sell a home.
1: Thank you, Norm, for your call. Uh, Joanne, what happens uh, when they get to that point where, um, again, they're hoping to sell, but then when you add up all of the commissions and conveyance taxes um, and uh, fixing things after the inspections, do you see a lot of people that uh, that drop out of uh, trying to sell their home in the first place?
4: Well, I mean, as realtors, one of our jobs is to try to prevent having people even get that far into it without understanding what they're going to be facing. So when we go out to meet with people initially, those are the things we're looking at. I look at every house uh, as a potential, especially in the lower price ranges, certainly, as a potential house for a VA or an FHA loan. And Norm is right. These, uh, the restrictions on these loans, as far as the repairs needed, are uh, you know are very specific. So I look at each house expecting that if they're in that situation, I talk to the homeowner about what kinds of repairs they may have to make. And then on top of that, the market is so condition sensitive and has been for several years that today's buyers really want to walk in and find a home in HGTV condition, showroom shape. And not everybody's in a position to be able to afford the upgrades that will put it in that type of condition. So that may what what it usually does is it prevents people from even putting it on the market because they realize that there just isn't enough money there for them to be able to get it sold. Ken, what
1: did you encounter in your reporting with the, the people that are looking for homes?
0: Uh, exactly what uh, and Joanne's absolutely right about that. they're they're looking for, and I've been hearing this for um, more than a year, maybe two years looking for those upgrades and looking for the new kitchen baths. And also, if you don't have that, that your house has to be priced at a certain level that the buyer coming in could maybe do that, but not just the amount to do that, but just to have a little cushion, too, on top of that. So what your caller pointed out was absolutely correct that, you know, at some point, the numbers there just don't pencil out.
1: Uh, when you mentioned, uh, Joanne, uh, FHA or VA loans, uh, these can be popular uh, because uh, they don't have to have as much down, uh, the down
4: payment uh, at time of, of closing? That's right. Uh, if for down payment for a VA, they can go for 100% financing. And for an FHA, all they need is 3.5% down payment. So this opens up the market to so many buyers who have the income to afford the monthly payment but just don't have enough down payment to go for a conventional loan. Uh, and and then they can build their closing costs. Very often they're building their closing costs into the purchase as well so that they don't even have to have closing costs available. Uh, Chris is calling from Manchester. Chris, go ahead.
3: Hi. So in Manchester, my neighborhood, I live in what most people consider starter homes, 1,000 to 1,500 square feet. And I've noticed that they seem to be moving an awful lot quicker than the middle and larger homes and, you know, middle to higher end homes in other towns. And also, same thing, my uh, family lives in Windsor, same thing there. We seem to notice that the, the starter homes values seem to be increasing quicker than the, you know, the 250, 350, which has always been considered kind of the prime market in Connecticut. Just wondering if they had any thoughts that's happening in other towns as well.
4: Chris, thanks for your call. Joanne. Yes, I think Chris is right. It it is something that we're seeing throughout all the towns. The you know, the starter homes are really the ones that are moving the fastest um and they're getting close to asking price because again, the the inventory's low and there are many buyers out there who fortunately have decided that renting if, is not necessarily something they want to do for the long term and they're seeing the value in owning a home again. Uh, So we're hopeful that this change in mentality is going to uh, help us bring this market back in Connecticut. Speaking of renting, we got a
1: tweet from a listener, Ben, who writes, if we constantly expect rising home prices, we make income inequality worse because lower income people can't buy homes. What's your response to that, Joanne? Because we hear so often about uh, the affordability housing crisis in the state.
4: Yeah, I mean, we, you know, again, there, that I think is something that's always been with us and, and unfortunately probably always will be. But I am seeing a hopeful sign among the lenders. The lenders t- tend to be loosening up on their qualifications, not to the, I hope they never go back to the looseness of 2006 and seven because that's what brought us into this mess to begin with. But they are loosening up in a more reasonable way to allow people with lower incomes who have reasonably good credit um, and have a good history of paying on time to be able to get into houses. So hopefully there will be more first-time buyer programs coming along that will help people out and help them get into the housing market.
1: Uh, We were talking about uh, the the lack of job recovery in the state. Uh, Also, personal income has stalled. Growth has stalled uh, in Connecticut. Um, Lots of uh, different factors uh, leading uh, to what we're seeing in the state. But I'm curious uh, from uh, the policy standpoint, when we look at what uh, the state legislature and the governor, the policies they put in place, how is that either helping or hurting the situation? Ken?
0: I think that um, the uncertainty and the worry about, you know, budget deficits down the road, how that is going to then cascade down to the towns, what people will have to pay in property taxes. People may be able to afford the mortgage payment, but then the property taxes are are, are high. Uh, they, they certainly are high. And um, if people on the, other, on the flip side, if sellers can't, cannot get the price that they want, but they're frustrated because their property taxes keep going up. So it, it is a very complex situation.
1: Uh, Joanne, I mentioned uh, besides being a broker and owner of ERA, Sargis Breen, your regional vice president for the Connecticut Association of Realtors. Uh, so what's your take on what's happening in Hartford and how that can help or hurt uh, prospective home buyers?
4: well i've been very active with connecticut association i've been up at the state at the legislative office building testifying either for or against various proposals that impact the housing market uh... connecticut association our motto this year is give us a connecticut to sell and we are working very hard to support legislators who are pro-housing and uh, working hard to keep bills from passing like uh, buyer conveyance taxes, for instance, that are just going to keep the, the housing market from recovering. Explain
1: briefly the conveyance tax for those of us who don't know a lot about it.
4: Well, con- buyers con- the conveyance tax, of course, sellers already pay a conveyance tax, and we have for several years in Connecticut. When you sell a property, you pay a certain percentage to the state of Connecticut, and then you pay something locally to your municipality. But now there have been proposals over the last few years because of the budget deficit for a buyer's conveyance tax. There are states that do have buyer's conveyance taxes, but in Connecticut we are taxed for so many things. Uh, Income tax, our property taxes continue to go up. And now to add a buyer's conveyance tax on, there was a proposal by a few towns where they wanted to have the right to charge a buyer's conveyance tax and then use that money to purchase open space land And right now, with the housing market still trying to recover, to me, to spend that money to purchase open space and charge buyers, it's going to end up being a cost, I think, in the end to the seller anyway that will get built into the purchase price of the house. And it will just keep the housing market from recovering as it should and appreciating.
1: Uh, before we head to break, uh, Ken, we were just talking about the results of the Democratic State Convention. Last week, we were talking about the Republican Convention. Any of these candidates talking about housing?
0: I have not really heard too much about this, this segment of the housing uh, uh, problem, that we're uh, the recovery, slow recovery. So um, I'm hoping that it will become an issue and that people will be talking about this and how all these things that are happening are playing into the housing market.
1: Ken Gossin's reporter for the Hartford Current. Ken, thank you so much. and oh. We'll tweet out a link to your story oh. at where we live. Thank you. Also, Joanne Breen, we appreciate your time. Broker owner of ERA Sargis Breen with offices in Newington and Berlin. Thanks, Joanne. Thanks for having me. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy nalpa When you had kids, who did you turn to for advice? Your parents, your grandparents, how we raise our own children can be shaped by our family. A new NPR series looks at how different cultures raise kids. It's called How to Raise a Human. And coming up, we're going to speak to NPR's health correspondent, Michaeline Duclef, about the series. And we want to hear from you. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live, I'm Lucy Nalpothanchel. At the top of the show, I mentioned how I avoid parenting books to you as well. Everyone has advice and it can get pretty tedious hearing what's right and what's wrong. But have you ever wondered why we've embraced certain parenting techniques in this country? There's so many ways to raise a child. It's the focus of a new NPR series called How to Raise a Human. Lead reporter in the series and global health correspondent for NPR, Michaelene Duclef, joins us now from the studios of KQED in San Francisco. Michaelene, welcome to the show.
5: Hi, great to be here.
1: So when I saw that you you were doing this series, I was so excited. And Tell us about the concept behind How to Raise a Human.
5: Yeah, so if you look at parenting books that we, you know, that are common in the U.S., you know, online advice, YouTube videos, almost all of this advice comes from the Western experience, Western culture, America, Europe, Australia. Um, But we are just this little tiny, tiny sliver of humanity, especially throughout human history. And there's all these other cultures out there that are also raising little people. Um, And so we were really curious, like, how they are doing it, especially these really old ancient cultures, like hunter-gatherers and indigenous cultures like the Maya. So Mm -hmm. we wanted to say, could we learn something from these other cultures and kind of fill in what's missing in the in the parenting books? You
1: mentioned the Mayan culture. Let's talk about one of the stories about the quote unquote super mom and where you went to figure out why we're so stressed out in this country, but in other places, parenting, it's not such a big deal.
5: Yeah, so I spent a couple um about a week it with the Samayan family and the Yucatan and I was just blown away by how calm and relaxed the moms were. I mean, these women were working hard. They have like four or five kids. You know, they're they're taking care of livestock to help the family income, they're cooking, fresh fresh good meals every day Um, but they were just so relaxed and their home was run with like minimal resistance there was very little bickering very little talking back and I was just I was like how how do they do this how what are they doing what's their secret
1: (laughs) Uh, one of the secrets uh, would be they have a lot of support familial support
5: Uh, oh absolutely this is so key so if you look around the world and throughout human history kids just did not evolve to, to be raised by one or two people. Uh, there were a whole slew of people around them helping the mom. So the grandma's key, um, aunts, older siblings, and even in Western culture, we have a rich history of neighbors helping each other. This idea of just like a mom stuck in her home by herself, I call it a mom in a box, um, there to raise the kids is is incredibly strange throughout human history, and even strange for Western culture. So, you know, we all know it, right? We all know that when we get our friends to help, we get our relatives to help, things are easier. And there's a reason for that. It's because kids evolved to be raised that way.
1: Uh, Now, you're also a mom, so there's so many different subjects and issues you can tackle in this series, how to raise a human., uh, so how do you decide, you know what to to look into in terms of how all other cultures are are dealing with the same issue?
5: Yeah, so we took like issues that were really like hot button issues in the US right now. So, baby sleep is a story that just came out today. That's, you know, you bring that up online and everyone gets heated up. And we're also looking at attention. So, um, you know, attention with kids, attention span with kids is really a critical but, um, topic. So, we took these really hot button topics, controversial. Um, con- very, um, with a lot of interest. And then we said, how are other cultures doing it? Can we get advice? Can we learn something from them? So we didn't want to, we wanted to look at really meaty issues. Mm
1: -hmm. You mentioned uh, bed sharing, uh, the story that just aired this morning. Uh, In the story, you interviewed uh, mother Melissa Nichols, uh, who says she tried crib sleeping. So allowing her baby just to sleep in the crib, not with her in the bed, but she found it ineffective for her newborn baby. Let's hear
5: the clip.
2: She was crying and like would absolutely not sleep. And, and I couldn't sleep either. Yeah. Because you
5: wanted to touch her and hold yeah.
2: her. Yeah. And I also just kind of feel instinctually that like she should – beyond me, like she's been in me for nine months and like, this has to be right. So
1: Michaeline again, this is very controversial. Uh, I know here in Connecticut, there were a few uh, babies who were sleeping in the bed or on the sofa with a parent and um, the babies unfortunately uh, passed away. And so there was yeah. this uh, campaign to say, you know, it's not safe to have your baby in bed with you. But that's something that a lot of parents struggle with. Tell us why.
5: Yeah, so this is a really controversial issue and I just want to say up front, sleeping on a sofa with a baby is never safe. Mm-hmm. The the scientific evidence is super clear there. But there's been this question of like for a mom that's sleeping in a bed that's, you know, safe, a firm mattress, no pillars, pillows, big comforters, you know, you know, is this is does this raise the risk of SIDs? Mm-hmm. Um if you look around the world and throughout human history, parents have been sleeping with babies. For hundreds of thousands of years, um, of course, the Western bed, the modern bed, is not designed for an infant in mind. You know, historically, babies have been sleeping on the floor or on on, on very thin mats. So, only in the last really couple of years have scientists been to, been able to kind of tease apart like when you when you when you have very safe situations. So, the mom isn't smoking, the mom isn't drinking, the baby is healthy, not premature, full full term, and healthy weight. You know, is sharing a bed with a baby dangerous? Does it raise the risk of SIDS? And it turns out it's really not an easy question to answer. I actually spent like weeks tracking down the two people that did those studies because Mm -hmm. nobody else could really discuss the data with me it is so complicated and so um so intricate but i i got i talked to them and i also talked to the guy who interpreted the data for the american academy of pediatrics and you know the bottom line is that there there's very little evidence about whether it's dangerous or not in these non-hazardous situations um, and if it is it's a very it's a very small risk for babies that are healthy full term, and the mom is, you know, not drinking, smoking, and, and really taking care. So it's one of those topics where it's like there's not like a, like a black or white answer. Mm-hmm. And that's hard. It's hard for people, right? It's, it's not just like it's always unsafe. It's always safe. There are particular instances where it is very unsafe. So the mom drinking, the mom smoking, being on a sofa. And, but there's other instances where it's, it's relatively, you know, not going not gonna to raise the risk very much, very, very little. Does I'm, that make sense?
1: It does. It <laughs> does. Uh, you know, I'm speaking with Michaeline Ducleff, Global Health Correspondent for NPR Science Desk. We're talking with her about this new series, How to Raise a Human, uh, the story that aired uh, this morning. We'll tweet out a link about uh, bed sharing and uh, the risks or uh, associated with that if there are certain hazards in place, as you mentioned, um, and tracking down uh, the authors of these two studies that came up with the conclusion um, based on these studies that babies older than three months, uh, if there was no Detectable increased risk of SIDS among families that practice bed sharing in the absence of other ha- hazards. Uh, we're getting a tweet from a listener, Michaeline, uh, who says that she's hearing a lot about cultures where help is offered by grandmothers, aunts, sisters. Mm. She wants to hear more about the involvement of men. And so that's my next <laughs> question for you: is how you, uh, what are some of the future stories you're going to be working on?
5: Yeah. So the men question is really interesting because really throughout human history, now not all, not all cultures, like there are some cultures where men are quite involved, but typically men haven't been very involved in raising children. And that's where actually in Western culture, we see uh, this this, uh, movement, right, where the men have stepped up in the last generation or so and filled in for some of the parenting the parenting role that is that's missing now from the grandmother and the aunt and the, and the sibling so if you look the the average number of hours that men are now helping out as a with with caretaking has doubled in the last like 50 or so years but women are still doing more of the share by far so, so the men are definitely stepping up and filling in for what we call allo parents or other parents um, but, but the women women the still need more help than that, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: I mentioned uh, your series is How to Raise a Human, hashtag How to Raise a Human. So you must be getting a lot of response from listeners about the stories they want to hear. I'm interested in the consumerism that has taken over oh. when it's time to have a baby in this country and all oh of the special things you need.
5: Well, I think that this speaks to this idea in our culture that, like, you need to do a lot of stuff to be a good parent. So heavy-handed parenting is a good thing, right? And also, if you don't do X before six months or a year or two, then you're you're going to somehow hurt the baby. This is kind of these, we need to do, 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 which often then ties in with bye, bye, bye. But if you look around the world and throughout time, the opposite is often true. A lot of cultures think that kids can really do well with minimal interference and that you're actually doing harm to the kid when you're trying to like wrestle them and force them to do certain things the kids actually can flourish when you're more hands off and this is interesting because psychologists these days in western culture are tying together a lack of autonomy and a lack of independence with some of the mental health issues we're seeing in kids and teenagers like anxiety and depression so maybe some of this heavy handed parenting is doing doing harm at some level and we can learn from the mind so just back off.
1: <laughs> well again, I really appreciate hearing from Michaeline Duclef, global health correspondent for NPR Science Desk, lead reporter for this new series, How to Raise a Human, joining us today from the San, Fran- San Francisco Bureau based at KQED. And I know this series is running through the middle of June. We're looking forward to the rest of your stories and your team.
5: Thank you so much.
1: Uh, Today's show produced by senior producer Lydia Brown. Special thanks to Carmen Baskoff and Carlos Mejia. Also, our technical producer, Kion Wolf. Learn more about the show at wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy nall Thanks for listening.